Now, this lesson comes with a disclaimer. We are going to be controversial today. So, I am no doubt going to offend 99.9% .9 of the people in this room, but I want you to stick with me because no matter what I say, there's going to be, even if you believe exactly the opposite, I'm going to show you by the end of the class how there's room for both of us in the pew. And, <laughs> and we're going to end up agreeing on the impact in our lives, regardless of the interpretation that we take, okay? So where we're going to start, I want you to pull out handout 4. It says handout 4, Hebrews 3.6. It looks like this. Yeah, it's that one you had your hand on, I believe. No, that mine says handout 5. Go, well, go, keep going then. Handout 4 is under there hand, somewhere. Handout 4. There you go. Okay. You got it? Got it. Because that's what I'm going to speak from. And the reason I'm speaking from that one is because this next verse, see, the, during the first part of Hebrews, the writer spent time explaining to the Hebrews why Jesus was more important than the angels. Okay? Then, last week, we, he spent time telling them how Jesus was more important than Moses. Now, that was even more inflammatory to a Jew, right? Okay? So he had to go very, very slowly and very carefully. But he brought them to that where they just, there was no way for them to say anything other than that. Okay? So he's proved to them that Jesus is greater than Moses. And now he throws in a little phrase that is the controversial one to modern-day Christians. So what I did was I, in Hebrews 3.6, I've given you um, in your handout the verse that has little word codes next to it from the Strong's Greek Dictionary. So that's how, when, whenever I want to know what a word means, this is how I look it up. And the reason is because it says Christ was a faithful as a son over God's house, whose house we are, and here's the kicker, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, that seems to say that our salvation is dependent on our works. And that, our, our ability to hold fast to the end. And that seems diametrically opposed to the clear teaching of Jesus and of the apostles and of the modern day church that salvation is by grace alone and is no way dependent on our abilities. So, you know, the first thing I do when I hit a verse like that that seems to be contradictory, very first thing I do is I get out my Greek concordance and I start looking up words. Because I'll, I'd say maybe 80% of the time, I find out that the problem was the meaning got waylaid in translation, okay? And that if I just go back to the original Greek, it all of a sudden makes sense. This, so that's what we're going to do with this one to see if that helps. The first word we want to look up is house. Because it says, we will be God's house if we hold fast. And the word house, if you look at it, it has a 3624 next to it. Okay, so you look up 3624, and it gives you the actual Greek word, which is oikos, shows you how to pronounce it, and then it gives you the possible definitions, the way that word is used both in the Bible and in classical Greek writing. And it's, an oikos can mean a dwelling, a family, a home, a house, a temple, etc. So in the context of this verse, I'm going to say, let's say dwelling place. Okay, instead of house. Let's pick dwelling. And you'll, I'm going to show you why later, but for, for right now, I want to I pick dwelling place. 
The next word we want to pick up on is the one that has a 2722 next to it, and it's actually a phrase called hold fast. Okay? That word is kateko, and it means hold down, hold fast, keep in memory, seize on. Okay, those are all different possibilities. But according to one of the Greek linguists that, that I consulted, this word is a special word used by sailors to mean hold one's course towards. It's the same word used in Acts 2740. I don't think I put this in your handouts. Oh, did I? Okay, good. It says, in, and casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. That we're heading for is exactly the same Greek word as used in Hebrews 3.6. Okay? So we're going to pick hold one's course towards. Okay? That's the, the meaning we're going to pick out. The next, thing we want, the next word we want to look at is word 3954. And that's the word that's translated confidence. Okay? That word is parousia. And it means all outspokenness, frankness, publicity, assurance, confidence. All of those kind of say the same thing to us, right? So I think confidence seems like a good word to use in that context. It means that our belief, we're as sure of our belief as we are sure of the nose on our face. Okay, we're, we're confident in this. The next word we want to look at is the word for boast. It's 2745, and it's kalkema. And that word can be translated, this is really interesting, boast, in a good or a bad sense, and glorying or rejoicing. Now, boast to us has a negative connotation, so let's go with the rejoicing, okay? Because that's obviously the meaning here. So I'm going to even say out and out rejoicing, okay? Then the next word that we want to look at is 1680. That's the word that is translated hope. That word is elpis, and it means to anticipate, usually with pleasure, expectation, or confidence. So expectation seems to make sense for this word. Let's use expectation. The next word is the word translated firm. It's 949, and it is the Greek word bebias. And it means stable, firm, steadfast, sure, that makes sense. Okay, so firm is good. Let's keep firm. Okay. And the last word we need to look at is the word that's translated, um, let's see, it is end, till the end, 5056. That's telos. And that word means to set out for a definite point or goal. The, it is the point you're aiming at. It is the result. And it seems to relate very well with that nautical term, doesn't it? To hold fast your course toward. This is just whatever you're aiming for. All right? So putting it all together, the meaning of the verse would be Christ was son over God's house, and we are God's house, his dwelling place, if we hold steady to our course, not wavering from our goal until we get there. And we look forward with pleasure and out-and-out -out rejoicing to finally reaching our goal. Okay? So it still seems to say we're part of God's house if 
we hold fast to this goal. Well, Jesus said repeatedly that to have eternal life, all we have to do is what? Believe. We just have to believe in him. Look at John 5, 24. Jesus is speaking. What I'm about to tell you is true. Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be found guilty. He has crossed over from death to life. And again, Jesus says in John 47, I'm telling you the most solemn and sober truth now. Whoever believes in me has real life, eternal life. Now, most Christians would agree that salvation, by definition, is having eternal life in Christ. Okay? That's kind of what we've all been taught. At its most basic level, salvation means we no longer need to fear the second death. Right? The fire, the lake of fire. Because of Jesus, our sins will no longer bring us to death. So salvation has already been accomplished without our works. If that's the case, what is it we're going to lose if we don't hold fast to the end? Let's look at a couple of pertinent passages where Jesus talks about these things. Look at Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13. This is Jesus. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus says many will turn away from the faith and their love will grow cold. Some people think, therefore, this can only apply to people who have not truly believed in the first place. I personally think he's saying that many believers will be deceived. And he's talking to his disciples here, you know. They will lose their first love and turn away from Christ. Here's another passage where Jesus talks to a church of believers that has lost their first love of Christ. In Revelation, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. The him is Jesus, the seven stars are the angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches. They tell you that later, okay? but, but it says that in Revelation. I know your deeds, he's speaking to this little church, your hard work and your perseverance. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand, that's a church, from its place. That's the whole church. There's got to be believers in there, okay? It seems this church was doing good works, but no longer loved Christ. Therefore, it was a meaningless institution and was in danger of being removed from among the churches held in the Lord's hand. And Jesus seems to say that believers can and do fall away even after they have been saved. Look at more of what Jesus says. John 15, 5 through 6. I am the vine, you are the, are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
And then again in Matthew 15, I'm sorry, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now Jesus himself said both things, that eternal life is given already to those who believe in him, and also that we must stand firmly in our faith to the end or we will be removed. Well, if he said both things, they cannot be contradictory statements. So what is it that we can be in danger of losing even after we are saved? Paul talks about eternal life in the same breath as he talks about persistence to the end. Let's look what he has to say. Romans 2, verse 5 through 8. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. I think it helps to look how James puts it. Look what James says in James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The crown here is the Greek word stephanos. It's the winner's crown. Okay. It, it refers to a reward. It's a reward given to those who persevere under trial. And now, let's look at what Jesus says, what he promises to those who persevere and overcome, starting in Revelation 2.7. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay. Revelation 2.11. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. 2.17 To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. 2.26-28 To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. Revelation 3.2 Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you, he's talking to a church, have a few people who will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Revelation 3.11 I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. 
And lastly, Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, all these promises are to me the definition of salvation. Therefore, to me, this says I can walk away from my salvation. Even after I have been saved, I think I have free will. I mean, I know down to the ground that I know God. I know him with my mind. I know him with my heart. And I know him in my soul. I know I am saved. I know I'm going to heaven. But I also sense that if I chose, I could walk out that door and walk away from it. I think I still have free will. Now, knowing what I know and knowing him as well as I do, I can't imagine ever walking out that door and walking away from him. But I believe that I could do it. Other Christians, for them, these promises are not talking about salvation itself, but the rewards we can hope for when we get to heaven. See the distinction? They would say we can never walk away from our salvation or lose it regardless of our future choices or actions. They would say instead that we can lose our reward. And how you view this is a very personal thing because the people who think you cannot lose your salvation are people who think that it's an, a complete act of God choosing who is saved and who is not saved. Okay. I personally think we have a choice in this matter, all right? And that's where we could have a difference of opinion on how to interpret this. But the end result needs to be the same, regardless of whether you define this loss as the loss of salvation or as the loss of rewards. There is obviously a loss of some kind, right? The end result needs to be that you persevere, that you overcome, that you hold on to the end. And these promises are what I hope for and look forward to with an out-and-out -out rejoicing. Jesus said we are saved by believing in him. But Jesus is also certainly saying that our perseverance is a very necessary ingredient in finally receiving all the promised blessings. For most Christians, the problem is not that we fail to accept our salvation. For most of us, the danger lies in apathy after we're saved, after you lose the first glow. It's kind of like getting married, right? You know, it's really easy the first week. <laughs> we are in danger of losing sight of our first love and falling into the sin of unbelief, just like that church in Revelation and just like those Israelites wandering in the wilderness. We just gradually drift away and become unaware that sin has crept into our lives and that our hearts are becoming hardened, that our eyes are blind and our ears are deaf. We are in danger of living lives that count for nothing more than straw in the eyes of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 through 15. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. His work will be shown for what it is because the day, that is the day with a capital D, judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire 
and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. This is one of the passages that brings many Christians to make a distinction between salvation, which is eternal life, and rewards. And, and it's a reasonable perspective, but to me it's splitting hairs. I don't want to go to heaven and just get some of it. I want all of it. I want salvation, eternal life, rewards, crowns, the whole nine yards. Whatever you want to call it, regardless of the interpretation you make. The important point is that it does matter how we live our lives after we become believers. Whether we can lose our salvation or only our rewards is a matter for Christ to judge. But we will all heartily agree that as Christians we must not sit on our hands. We must work in the vineyard of the Lord. We must grow and mature and encourage each other. The body of Christ has a mission here on earth and we are all called. There is certainly no work we can do that will earn us our salvation. There's no way we can be good enough to earn our way into heaven without Jesus Christ. Okay, I don't want you to think that's what I'm saying. <coughs> the only way our salvation becomes possible at all was because Jesus atoned for our sins. We are not saved by our works. Look at Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. But it does appear to me that once we are saved, it's very important that we cling to our salvation, that we not neglect it, that we make every effort to grow and mature and produce fruit in accordance with the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. Look at the very next verse in that uh, verse from Ephesians in 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That says that's what we're made for. The common teaching that salvation is dependent solely on the grace of God is absolutely true. But the corollary that our subsequent actions or apathy have no impact on our future in heaven is absolutely false and completely contrary to the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, in my, in my humble opinion. Okay, <laughs> I want to tell you a story. This is a completely made up story, but it's an illustration and it helps me keep these concepts in my mind, straight in my mind. It's a story about Harold and Mabel who live in Elgin, Texas. Ed McMahon shows up at their doorstep with balloons one day. Hurrah! Congratulations! You have won a mansion in California. And here's the keys to the limousine to get there. All we ask you to do is go by Dallas and pick up a, a winner and go by Amarillo and pick up another winner on your way out. And by the way, if you run into any trouble at all, here's a toll-free number to call and help will arrive. Wow, Harold and Mabel, they are so excited. They call all their friends, and all their friends come over. Everybody gets in the limousine. They take a ride around the block. You know, it's really exciting. And after a while, one of their friends says, you know, are you sure you heard that right? Maybe the limousine is what you won, and those other guys in Amarillo and Dallas, they won the mansion. Oh, Harold and Mabel are just crushed. 
And after their friends go home, they talk about it and they say, you know, I really think he said we won the mansion. And what have we got to lose? Let's go anyway. Okay, so they hop in the limousine and they drive off. Well, they stop in Dallas and they pick up Fred and they stop in Amarillo and they pick up George and they head on out. They drive a long, long time. And they begin to take for granted the fact that all their meals and lodging and gas is paid for in advance. In fact, they start to grumble that the meals are not at the best restaurants, but are like at the Golden Arches. You know what? They were getting tired of Big Macs. But they keep pressing on towards California. And they finally reach Las Vegas. Oh my gosh, the lights and the bustle are so exciting and what a welcome change from the long, tiring road. Well, George thinks they ought to stay in Las Vegas. This looks good to George. Everything's still being paid for, no matter how long they stay. It's a sure thing. And, he points out, they're fixing to hit the Mojave Desert and surely that was not what was intended by the prize patrol. The mansion in California was probably just an example of the kind of prize they'd win. You know, it probably wasn't a real, literal mansion. Surely they were meant to stay in Las Vegas. But Harold and Mabel thought Las Vegas was cheap and tawdry and not at all what they expected. They finally convinced Fred and George to continue on towards California. They head into the Mojave Desert region and conditions get worse and worse. Even Harold wants to turn around and go back to Las Vegas. And then right in the middle of Death Valley, the limousine stalls. They are utterly alone. They try everything to start the car, but you know cars nowadays, you gotta have a computer to fix anything, right? Finally in despair, literally dying of thirst, Mabel begins to cry. Then suddenly Fred remembers the toll-free number. They call it and help arrives, rejoicing they get back on the road and shortly thereafter reach the mansion in California. They walk up the grand entrance, the doors are flung open and they are welcomed into a huge homecoming celebration. As they cross the threshold, the four friends look at each other and realize that none of them would have made it without the help of the others. The moment in which Harold and Mabel are told they have won that wonderful mansion, the moment they believe that is like the moment of our salvation. Harold and Mabel had done nothing to deserve such a wonderful gift, but it was theirs. They owned it outright and immediately. Even though they had never seen it, they knew it existed and it belonged to them. But what if they had just rejoiced in the gift, sat in the limousine at home, stayed in Las Vegas permanently? It was tempting to stop. Certainly they could see evidence of their blessings, free food, prepaid lodging. What if they had given in to discouragement? They almost forgot they could call on additional help when they needed it and they never would have made it without the encouragement of the others who shared the journey. They needed to be reminded of the promises. This is a parable of our own lives, how we must persevere and stay the course. 
even after salvation, we can stray from the course. You'll see that this is a central message of Hebrews, and we're, we're going to touch on it often in our study. Go back and read your New Testament, virtually anywhere in the epistles, in the letters. Just pick it up and read it with Harold and Mabel in mind. Suddenly, whole chunks of the New Testament that might have been confusing before will ma now make complete sense. For example, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 12. This, is, this is, has always been a tricky one. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from all his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Doesn't that make beautiful sense? The Gospels are a call to salvation, to repentance and to belief. But the epistles, the letters, show us how to persevere, how to live, so we will receive all the promised blessings in the last day. So let's go on to Hebrews 3.7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. He's talking about, you know, the 40 years in the Israelites wandered around. Where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years, saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, this, of course, refers to the Israelites brought out of Egypt by the Lord with great and mighty miracles who were fed miraculously every single day with manna, whose thirst was quenched with living water gushing from dry rock. Yet when God promised to give them their own land, that he was going to drive out the giants and the warriors that lived in it, and give it to the Israelites, they did not enter with gladness and rejoicing. Even though he had already defeated the, Egyptian, the Egyptians and the Amalekites, they were afraid and they refused to trust him and enter. Even worse, they put God on trial. In verse 9 where it says they tested and tried God, the words there, the Greek words mean literally, they put him to the test to see if he was good or evil for the purpose of approving or disapproving him. Can you imagine? So God's anger burned against them. In fact, the word used for anger here 
actually cares, carries a connotation of being disgusted. He was utterly disgusted with them. How could they reject his great gift? How could they doubt him? You know why? Because they never took the time to get to know him. They always saw him as an external God, external to themselves, an unrelated God. They judged him as being capricious, even though he had always been faithful. They never trusted him. So they were doomed to wander around in the desert till they died. In terms of our story, they stopped in Las Vegas. God still fed them every day. Their clothes never wore out. Their shoes never got holes in them. They never died of thirst. They died of old age in their stubbornness and never entered the promised land. And the Hebrews were in danger of doing the same thing. They were in danger of walking away from the new covenant, of rejecting the great promise of salvation through Jesus and going back to the old covenant. Hebrews 3.12 See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, again, the writer addresses them as brothers and urges them not to turn away from the living God. The, the turn away there means to instigate revolt. It's not just a passive turning away. It's a violent turning away. We must not revolt or leave God or withdraw ourselves from him. We must not give him the silent treatment. I read a booklet once that I thought was really profound, saying that when you give the silent treatment to a loved one, you're doing violence to them. You are actively rejecting them. It's, it's not something we should be doing. And we should not be doing it to God either. We must encourage each other to persevere so that sin has no chance to harden our heart and make it unreceptive to God's spirit. If we allow sin to make us stubborn, if we allow it to enter our lives and live in our hearts, then the truths of the Spirit will no longer make sense to us. We will wonder why we ever believed it in the first place. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. A person who isn't spiritual doesn't accept the teachings of God's Spirit. He thinks they're nonsense. He can't understand them because a person must be spiritual to evaluate them. Galatians 6.7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. There's a sense of urgency about this. In Hebrews verse 13 that we read, the writer uses two Greek words in a special way. The first word is parakaleo, and the and is the word that's translated encourage in that verse. The root word kaleo means to call, but the prefix para to make para kaleo intensifies that verb. It means to call strenuously. And the word today, if you'll notice in your Bibles, today is capitalized. That's because in the Greek it's preceded by the definite article. It's actually should probably be translated the today. Okay, that's why it's capitalized. And we are being called strenuously, urged to call strenuously to each other as long as we are living in the today, the current period of grace, the end time. 
Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. There's that concept again. This, <clears throat> this verse is another one that gets totally twisted. It's usually interpreted to mean that if we hold firmly to the end, we must have been really saved in the first place. <laughs> Pretty good logic, huh? But if we fail, we were never really saved at all. And I don't want to laugh at people who believe that. You know, you're going to get to the same place if you believe that, that that way. That's okay, you know. And I will be a Christian right alongside you. But I don't think that's what it's saying, okay. The words share in Christ mean partner. It means partaker in Christ. It's we will be partners with Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Christ is... Your salvation, your Christianity should not be a snapshot. You should not be going to classes to fill in pieces of a, a static jigsaw puzzle. Salvation is a door. Christ is going someplace. If you want to be his partner, grab hold and move. If you're standing still, okay, other than in the still, quiet prayer, okay, which is very important, but if you're not moving with Christ, you're, you're missing something. You're missing a point here. Hebrews 3.15 As it has just been said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? if not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The Israelites are a parable just like Harold and Mabel. I mean, they really happened, but it happened intentionally. Okay, Were the Israelites really saved out of Egypt? Yes, they really were saved, just like we really are saved. Were they truly God's people, the chosen ones? Yes. But weren't they the same ones who rebelled and died in the desert? Yes. Weren't these the very ones God did not allow to enter his rest? Yes. So don't become complacent Christians. We are like those Israelites. We have been saved, but we have a choice to believe God's promises and step forward or not. The writer of Hebrews is reminding us strongly, calling strenuously to us, that although we are truly chosen and truly saved, we must not fall away. We must not throw away the great gift purchased by Jesus' own blood and given to us freely in God's great mercy, even though we never did anything to deserve such a great salvation. The Israelites did not enter the promised land because of their unbelief. Let us not make that same terrible mistake. And that's the end of chapter 3. It's a good place to stop, and we'll pick up chapter 4 next time. <laughs>